when I say go to a cocktail party and tell people about what they do, they look at me funny. Um, I try to figure out why they look at me funny. You know, why, to me, that looked completely natural. I mean, if you think about why you have two hands, you know, or why you have this position for brain cancer, innateness there seems like a, you know, completely plausible hypothesis. Why is it the case that we think about syntax and innate knowledge, why that cannot be innate, why it's only having two hands that, that can be innate. Um, so to me, that, that seems obvious, but it turns out that people don't think that this is obvious at all. And they thought that, in fact, raising, even posing the question of innate knowledge is kind of absurd. What is human nature? It's a question that's troubled scientists and philosophers forever. Uh, but Professor Earspirit, in her book, The Blind Storyteller, asks a different question. She asks how lay people think about human nature. Lay people, normal people, people who aren't scientists or philosophers, reason about human nature in, in systematic ways. Uh, she is professor of cognitive psychology at Northeastern University and the head of the Language Mind Lab. She works in linguistics, specifically phonology. Uh, we talk about problems in language, phonology, and her central thesis in The Blind Storyteller here. This is my conversation with Professor Iris Baird. I think the best place to start is talking about the nativist empiricist division in, in linguistics, uh, just what it's about and where it's at today and what your thoughts on it are. The question of whether experience plays a role in language acquisition is a no-brainer. Obviously, it does, right? So nobody would debate that, uh, you know, infants are not born speaking French, although some people might think they do, right? Uh, but that's not the case. Um, so the role of experience is indisputable. Um, the question is whether experience is sufficient to explain why it's the case that every human child naturally acquires a language, whereas, say, um, a cat or a dog that is exposed to the same input would not uh, be able to do so. The nativist alternative here is nuance. The claim is not merely that the advantage of the child arises from something that is innate, because obviously innate capacities include sensory motor capacities. So, for example, maybe the child can acquire English because they can coordinate the dancing of their mouth and lips in, in uh, an exquisite way, in the way that a cat cannot do. Maybe they just have excellent hearing. Maybe they're interested in other uh, humans. But the nativist position here states that it's not merely innate sensory motor or cognitive generic capacities that are innate, but rather what a child is endowed with innately, critically, is innate knowledge. So a child can acquire a language because they have this advantage because they are born knowing certain stuff about language, certain very general principles, general rules of language, and it's this innate knowledge that allows the child to acquire language. And it's that position, so obviously here Chomsky, uh, who originated this uh, position in modern uh, time, um, connects to the big debate in philosophy about the origins of knowledge and takes a very clear position that it's really this uh, rationalist perspective that allows the child to um, attain language. And I think this is a super interesting um, way for scientists to connect to this debate in very concrete ways. Right. In, in sort of the early formulations that Chomsky had, I think he, always, he often said that the, the empiricist alternative in Skinner at that time uh, kind of doesn't posit a language faculty, just sees language as a a behavior that's produced by a more general cognitive capacity, namely learning. Or so, yeah. So in the Skinnerian alternative, that the, 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 the division between the two positions was extremely large. It was a division between a representationalist plus nativist position versus one that has no cognitive representations at all and no innate knowledge. 
thanks to Chomsky's work, we have passed into the, uh, the cognitive revolution. Now people do maintain at least many people, not everybody. We can talk about embodied cognition later, but most cognitive science does assume the existence of some uh, cognitive representations. And the debate is not whether representations arise, but for the most part, where, um, how they arise. So I'm sorry, the debate, I misspoke. The debate is not whether those representations exist, but rather about how they arise and whether there is an innate basis for them. Right, right. And just just to clarify on that, the the idea that there is native structure that has knowledge uh, is different from saying that there is a mechanism that has knowledge, right? Like it has, it genuinely has some content to that knowledge. Exactly. So... Fodor, uh, in his modularity of mind, cached this notion of innate knowledge and argued that in addition to claiming innate knowledge, there must be a mechanism that must be postulated in order to explain how this whole thing computes. But for both Chomsky and uh, Fodor, there is this commitment to innate knowledge because what makes a module module, what makes the language module is a language module is not simply the fact that it applies to language, but rather it's that innate uh, set of principles that makes it domain specific. So it has some innateness within it, innate yeah. knowledge within it. Innate knowledge, exactly. So uh, let's talk about phonology. Uh, how did you come to work on phonology? Um, so phonology is not a really popular place to explore the question of universal grammar. Chomsky himself, when he talks about universal grammar, about UG, typically talks about syntax as the core of the language faculty. And phonology is usually delegated to those as you know, sensory motor capacities to this externalization. It's, that's not the core of the language capacity. Um, I got to that personally, pretty much by accident, through my in previous interest in reading, um, and by through seeing the um, very intimate connections between reading and language via phonology, which suggested to me that there is something more basic about uh, phonological computations. And from that, I got very curious about, is there none, you know, how do, how does, how does your knowledge of phonology arise? So maybe we should say something about what phonology is. Um, so phonology, as I view it, is your capacity or your knowledge about how, say, words are formed from meaningless elements. So this is your knowledge about how meaningless elements combine to form meaningful elements. Um, Usually those meaningless elements are speech sounds in spoken languages, but not necessarily so. Sign languages exist. They too comprise signs from meaningless elements that are manual. The human capacity for language applies in both modalities and therefore to give a more general definition, I'm using this meaningless term, but really this is because language is not modality specific. So that gives you a clue into this notion that Phonology is not just about talking, and it's not just about hearing, it's more abstract uh, computation, and that's exactly is the question that uh, I, I'm interested in in my work. That's, it's really tough to wrap your brain around, that phonology applies to not just spoken language, but to sign language as well. Yeah, because I think that when we think about language, we feel like we are experts in language already, right? We speak a language and we think we understand how we do it, and so we have this intuitive theory about how language works, and we are convinced that phonology, right, so how those meaningless elements combine, why is it that you blog and you don't ulbog, L-B-O-G, um, so why is it the case that one and not the other, and your intuition is immediately, it has to do with the fact that I just can't say it, right, that book is impossible to say. Um, there is a grain of truth in that, but only a grain of truth. It's only a grain of truth because there are languages that have that will bog all day long and they have no problems with that. So we're now talking the news about the city of right? So that there's no problem for uh, speakers of Ukraine to produce this cluster, uh, the Lva thing. Um, so it's not impossible for the human mouth to produce, but 
maybe it is more difficult. And the tricky thing about this phonology is that um, there is this correlation between what phonological systems like to do. So most languages do not muba. Most languages gla. So there is a correlation between what languages like to do and what is easier for the sensory motor systems to do. And then the question is, what's the chicken and egg, right? What is the causation? Is the cause of language patterns, is it caused directly by the sensory motor system? Namely, is it the case that when I come to think about what's possible in my language, it's my mouth and ears that are doing the causal work? Or is it the case that I still have rules of language and I still have universal grammar? And perhaps in, you know, uh, early evolutionary history, that these constraints were shaped by the sensory motor system. But what is now for me and you doing the causal work is those abstract rules. So, you know, in a way, phonology is the least uh, plausible place to look at universal grammar because you have such a strong alternative that is not computational, that is based on um, simply the, the body, let's call it. Um, and uh, I think this makes it a really exciting and tough problem to tackle and one that, unfortunately, most people who do generative linguistics um, have kind of pretty much gave up on. Yeah, I mean, but that's very exciting that if we're finding abstract rules in phonology, then that's a whole lot of credibility for general linguistics. Yeah, it's not e it's not easy to show, but I think we do have some evidence that that might be the case. Yeah. And maybe I can, you know, if you'd like, I can go into some of the evidence. Please, yes. Why, why we think that's the case. Um, so for me, it's totally an empirical question, right? We don't know a priori what is the, the right cause. Um, there are several ways to look at that. Um, one is to uh, ask, test this intuitive psychology explanation of linguistics, which has it's the sensory and motor system. So, right, if you think that a dog is bad, it's because you're trying to kind of, um, even if you're not explicitly talking, you are simulating what it would be to say, it, and you can say blah, and you can't say blah, and therefore blah is the better candidate. Well, there is a way to test this. And one way that we have done is to literally disrupt the motor system. So there is this technique that is called transcranial magnetic stimulation, whereby you apply uh, electric current through a magnetic, so well, you, you disrupt the, the electric activity in the brain through a magnetic field that is applied on the head, so it's non-invasive. And you can apply it at specific areas, such as the area that controls the lips, and ask, if I disrupt the lips, is it going to disrupt my ability to uh, distinguish between phonological patterns? The idea being that if phonology is only about articulation, then when you mess with an articulation, you should mess with phonological knowledge. It turns out that you don't, right? So when you disrupt this, what we have found is that people are just as sensitive to these distinctions. Another way to look at that is ask, what happens when you look at newborns who don't talk? Do they care about it? And it turns out that newborn brains, you can also look at brain activity in newborns through a technique that's called near-infrared spectroscopy. Um, when uh, that study was done, uh, what we found is that, in fact, like adults, newborns who still obviously cannot talk, still prefer the good guys to the bad guys. So they prefer the blah-type sequences to the blah-type sequences. In recent work in my lab, we kind of took even a more audacious um, approach to this question. And what we ask is the following question. What happens when you override the sensory motor system altogether? So what happens when we present you in phonology, not in your um, familiar sensory motor um, channel through speech, but through signs in the manual and visual modality? So our intuition is that as non-signer, if you're going to see signs in American Sign Language, this is going to look like dance to you, and it's not going to invoke any linguistic intuitions whatsoever. But 
this is actually an empirical question that can be investigated. Now, to clarify, I'm not saying that sign language is not a language. All to the contrary, it is a language like any other language. However, if your rules of language are really abstract, then once they recognize a pattern, then the pattern might be recognized regardless of whether it's implemented in speech or in signs. So, for example, if your language has reduplicative structures like ba, ba, and da, da, and you know something about their morphology, about how sound corresponds to meaning. If you're going to see the same uh, structures implemented in signs, where the sign, I'm not a signer, but it's going to be something like, you know, two repeated signs, which would be two syllables like that, would that tickle what you know about the rules of reduplication in your spoken language? Well, it turns out that it does, because if your language has a lot of reduplication, like Hebrew, you're going to respond to that differently to English speakers and also differently to Chinese that does have no, uh, uh, say, plural morphology to speak of whatsoever. So what we find is consistently that what you know about your spoken language actually informs how you respond to signs. So I think this gives credence to this notion that what you know about phonology is extremely abstract and in fact, a model. It's not linked to any particular modality. Right, right. That, that's very exciting. I, very, very exciting. Um, yeah. oh, just to take a step back, I imagine that's, uh, like, I know there's a problem when we're looking at language between, in distinguishing between, like, a, a national language that's been set there because of rules that are dictated by historical, political, social circumstance versus looking at language biologically. And imagine that's also a problem with sign language as well. So I think it's an empirical question, right? It's the question of if you're going to invent language um, and it's going to violate every rule of universal grammar, what would happen? And if universal grammar really exists, then speakers ought to not be able to learn this language. Alternatively, Languages are born all the time, right? Including sign languages. So you, when you put, we know that when deaf individuals are assembled together in a social group and they want to communicate, they will generate language anew. And when those, uh, uh, and the reason why we call them languages is because when you inspect how they work, you see that they capitulate, recapitulate the structure of other languages, both spoken and signed. So that gives credence to this notion that when languages are generated, they uh, recapitulate this same innate structure. But this is an empirical you know, question to, to be looked at. Okay. J just to talk about the, uh, the embryology of language a little bit, because uh, I think that could be helpful to people not familiar with it. Um, embryology development obviously plays a part in not just language, but any cognitive phenomena. Um, right. Right. So how's the right way to think about that? I've heard you say before that we should think about it as, as triggers that, that facilitate the development of a language faculty rather than as uh, learning. Um, is that kind of a helpful characterization? I, I don't think we are there. I think that you're asking an excellent question, but I don't think we are there. I don't think, so I, I can totally understand how if you're interested in questions about innateness, you want to cash it out in terms of what's the evolutionary story, what's the embryonic story about all this, how this unfolds. So just as you want to understand how the hands unfold in the embryo, so you want to understand how universal grammar unfolds in the embryo. The problem is that we are not there. We are not there. So to have a story about development, evolution, you know, in, a spe in the species evolution and in the individual um, uh, embryonic development, you need to have a sense of how, what is the anatomy of the faculty and how it is implemented in the brain. And we don't. We have very partial understanding of where things are in the brain, partial, which is very different to understanding of how things compute in the brain. So, um, if we don't understand then that, we can't understand how things develop either at you know at, at the physiological level. So um, I think you're totally right to hold the science accountable for those questions, but we are uh, you know many many years 
away from answering them at the moment. That makes sense. I mean, I feel like that's the normal story of science, right? You have these different levels of analysis, a computational level of analysis and a physiological one. And if we're just waiting around to make them unified, then we'd never get anywhere. We need to work with the data and the tools that we have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, although I agree with you that that ought to be a goal to aspire. Yeah. The the evolution of language, as far as I've been able to make it out, seems to be totally mysterious still. In my reading of the literature, too, yeah. I think that, that it's a, a perfectly, you know, if a researcher finds considerations about evolution helpful in generating testable hypotheses, then fine. You know, how you come up with your hypothesis, nobody, you know, it's your business. The proof is in the pudding, right? So we want to look at the hypothesis. That's the real question. Um, using evolution as, um, of course, that would be nice if you, you can explain that as well. But I, I think that um, the ultimate test remains the empirical test. So, sorry, one thing I want to ask you about is the idea of core knowledge. Uh, yeah, so how should we think about core knowledge? So core knowledge is a concept that was uh, proposed by Elizabeth Spelke and Susan Carey, both at Harvard. Um, uh, Alan Leslie also um, suggesting that humans are born with certain innate knowledge in specific domains. For example, infants have innate knowledge of an object, what objects are and how they behave. So if in, you take newborn infants and you present them with impossible uh, physical events where, you know, there's one object and another one comes and, you know, um, bumps into that. But rather than creating a movement immediately, it's like it bumps into that, it stays a second, and then it moves. Um, infants are demonstrably surprised, including newborn infants are demonstrably su surprised by that. Experiments such as that with appropriate controls, which I haven't described, suggest that Infants come to the world knowing in advance what objects are and how they behave. They have other expectations about agents. They know that people, you know, if they saw me sitting here and I would stand up and walk, they wouldn't be as surprised as an object because they know that people um, uh, can uh, initiate a movement autonomously based on their goals. So um, this is one example where infants apparently are born with a certain uh, innate disposition, knowledge about what objects are. Infants also have innate knowledge about number. They, in fact, can recognize small numerosity. They know the difference between two and three. They have um, understanding about, as I said, agents and the uh, minds of others uh, is the cause of their actions. So all those are examples of systems of core knowledge. Uh, language can be viewed as one of those systems, and um, uh, that is um, an interesting way to uh, formulate language hypothesis. What it gives you, in addition to uh, what Chomsky is saying, is that core knowledge systems are known to not only define the initial understanding of the world, but also later understanding. So take uh, number cognition, for instance. You and I have a notion of number that is recursive. So we know one, two, three, million, million, and one, right? So uh, you can always have the x plus one uh, function that uh, can apply recursively and infinitively. This is not the case for infants. So infant can understand the distinction between one and two and two and three precisely, but that's pretty much where it ends. And beyond that, um, a distinct, the distinction, say, between 10 and 11 is not possible. You can distinguish 10 from 20, but not 10 from 11. We can do so because we have a novel system, novel in evolutionary terms of uh, recursive number. This is built on, uh, based on those systems of core knowledge. So the hypothesis that Carey and Spelke spent, spelled out is that um, the brain forms those novel systems of core knowledge by um, 
building upon those systems, I'm sorry, that the brain um, forms those novel systems of knowledge by uh, building upon those earlier systems of foreknowledge. Um, the question is whether this uh, also applies to uh, language and in particular to phonology. And one hypothesis that I think there is evidence for is that um, the link with what, what phonology is doing for uh, the, um, say, adult cognition is giving you the basis for reading and for writing. And those are examples of novel systems that are not universal, that are not innate. But when human brains come to invent those things, they do not just start from um, you know, thin air, but that, rather they build this knowledge upon those systems of core knowledge. So reading and writing are directly related to phonology. Yeah, and there is evidence for that. So that's, for example, when you proofread your papers, uh, homophones are the you know really hard things to uh, proofread, right? So if you have rows, R-O-S-E, or R-O-W-S, those are the, are the errors that are really difficult to, to catch. Why? Because your code of that, the way your brain decodes those things, is not just as the letters, but also as the sounds. Because those two things have exactly the same sounds, they are extremely confusable, more so than two words that would only differ in terms of their spelling. There's a very large literature that shows that that's in fact the case. So why, why core knowledge matters for phonology? Why core knowledge matters for phonology is because um, in addition to this um, theoretical question of how we build knowledge and how knowledge arises and whether it is constrained by innate knowledge. Right. turns out that it might well be the case. Um, there are practical implications that relate to how you teach reading or how you understand dyslexia. And um, one of the, so if it's the case that in order for you to decode words, you need to extract their phonology, then you better teach children how to do that because this is not something that they would do uh, naturally. Reading is not something that kids uh, would do unless they are taught how to do so. Um, and there is a huge debate in uh, educational communities about what, how, what is the best way to um, teach reading. Um, Finding that adults uh, uh, recognize words by extracting their phonology means, as I said, that this is something that needs to be taught to kids. Um, and, and when this process goes uh, awry, as in the case of dyslexia, then reading disability indeed arises. So, yeah. Uh, I see. Okay. So we, we, we teach grammar, syntax, semantics, because we have an implicit assumption that there is something abstract universal going on there, but we don't think the same way about phonology. And then that's sort of a disservice to, to education. That's the idea? No. So we don't need to teach. That's an interesting point that you raised. So we don't need to teach. So you don't need to teach syntax to a child. A child will acquire syntax naturally and tacitly. This is tacit core knowledge that a child will extract. Why? Because language is a natural capacity in humans. Reading is not. A child will learn language and will get its phonology even when they're not taught explicitly. Illiterate people do just fine. Their linguistic capacity is completely intact. Um, they don't know how to read, though. Reading is not the same as language. Reading is a completely, it's an invention. It's, a, a, it's an artificial system. Think about it. How crazy is it that you expect a child to see those scribbles on a piece of paper and link it to language, right? This is not natural for humans to do. Um, so this is an invented capacity. So precisely because it's invented, the instinct is to think about it as Oh, you, it can go either way. You can either, you can just teach the letters and the words will come up. Um, but it's precisely because you understand that the system runs on the tracks of the language system. And in order for reading to work, it needs to work, connect to language in the same way that speech connects to language through phonology, that Things have to go in this particular way. Uh, that is exactly because um, uh, reading recapitulates your knowledge of language and because language necessarily entails phonology, that's also the case that reading is built on phonology. And for it to work properly, 
when it comes to reading unlike language here you need to teach the child how to do that because otherwise they won't be able to extract phonological structure uh, spontaneously so yeah so language and reading are linked by this but distinct and it's precisely core knowledge that explains this distinction Uh, okay i think i get it now yes just because you don't need to teach children to speak because it's not invented it's a natural capacity they have but because reading and writing are, are invented that that link is needed yeah they're invented but they're not arbitrary and that's the trick there yeah right right they're a human capacity that have deep roots to to our cognitive capacities yeah yeah um coming back to embodied cognition uh, you mentioned earlier um I- i'm really confused in this area the sort of overlap between what embodied cognition says about generative linguistics uh, do you mind just briefly sort of introducing that sure so Embedded cognition is the claim that your understanding of, um, say, concepts is based not on some abstract representation, but it directly is based on the sum of your sensory and motor interactions with the relevant entities. So my understanding of this battle, I don't have this abstract symbol for a battle, uh, but rather it's my the sum of my experiences holding the battle, how cold it is and how round it is and how metallic it is, this is what counts as uh, my understanding of the battle. Furthermore, when I perceive a battle, so in order for me to really uh, uh, retrieve this um, sum of experiences, I need to simulate what it would be for me to actually hold this. So to connect to the example of phonology that we used before, embedded cognition would tell you that your understanding of why blah is better, it's not some abstract rule, it's not this abstract representation, but rather you are trying to simulate, to enact what it would be for you to say blog. You do it silently, but you nonetheless go run this tape, so to speak. Um, and it's this experience, embodied experience, that um, uh, informs your, um, say, phonological intuitions in this case. So this is really the no, an, an alternative to the representational theory of mind. What the cause of your, say, linguistic intuitions is not represent, structured representation. It's not the structure of my representation of the word. Rather, it's the sensory and motor of, of experience of, in this case, producing this uh, sound sequence. Um, there is a little bit of a red herring there, actually a very big red herring there. So when you say cognition is embodied, um, obviously that sounds great. What would be the alternative? That cognition is disembodied, that you're a dualist, that uh, if you believe in... Um, say, abstract rules, then do you think that they do not form part of a body? Obviously, that's not the case. Um, The alternative that, say, a generative linguist would suggest is not that knowledge of language is somewhere in the air, but it's in the brain, which is part of the body. So the debate here is not between an embodied view and some ethereal view, but rather two views of how information is represented in the body. One that claims that information is represented in terms of abstract symbols in the brain, and the other suggests that the brain mechanisms um, operate by simulating motor plans or, or, say, sensory plans, and it's that that constitutes your um, uh, representation of reality. So generative linguistics is still well embodied in the sense that your brain is part of your body. Oh yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and that's a that, that that's problematic because oftentimes, um, you know, that's a draw. So I, I want to make it clear. I I do work in my lab that look very seriously at the notion of embodied cognition, and we do have evidence for embodied cognition. So I think that some of those claims are right in a very particular domain that I can explain later. So I have, you know, nothing against embodied cognition. I do have something against the alternative that if you endorse the role of abstract rules, then you're a dualist, which is a claim that you often hear. I don't think that follows at all. 
So in particular, say, what, what we do in the lab is show, uh, so there's a huge literature, for example, it's a super interesting literature that shows that when you perceive a speech sound, I'll remain the, in the domain of language for a moment, when you perceive a speech sound such as ba, a sound that is produced by the lips, the motor area of the brain that controls the lip fires. When you hear a sound like da, that's produced by the tongue, the another area adjacent that controls the tongue, that area fires. So there is direct support. And, and furthermore, we know that if you stimulate those areas using transcranial magnetic stimulation, you're going to affect perception. So not only do we know that hearing a sound activates, simulates this motor uh, but rather than the role of this motor plan is causal, that if you disrupt it, then you really disrupt perception. So there's very strong evidence that in the perception of speech sounds, um, people do rely on embodied cognition, just as the theory suggests. This, however, does not mean that all aspects of language are embodied. It does not demonstrate that, say, when you compute the sound sequence, um, you only rely on embodied cognition. And in fact, we have found, as I demonstrated, that when you disrupt the same lip motor area, you do nothing to uh, the perception of syllable structure, for instance. So I think this is in line with the hypothesis that there are some low level of language, say, you know, think about language as a Lego factory, right? Um, what language is doing is constructing these beautiful powers out of discrete units using combinatorial rules. But before you do that, you need to get the Lego blocks, right? You need a Lego factory that gets that Lego uh, units from the analog, uh, you know, continuous uh, plastic right. stuff. That process is heavily embodied. And that process, when causally rely, you know, critically relies on the activity of the motor system. But at least based on the evidence that we have so far, it remains quite possible that there are other aspects of language that the combinatorial department of the Lego factory, this relies on abstract rules. So I think there is room for both. And I think there um, is a, a really interesting research program ahead to try to really uh, define specifically what each of them does. Right. So you think then embodied cognition can help explain what those discrete what those Legos are and how they are uh, how they are extracted yes the, the thing is that you know it's often the case in science that people like to have strong hypotheses and they have hypotheses and they want to push it as far as they can and to say okay I've shown evidence for embodied cognition in one area the perception of speech sounds therefore language is embodied as a whole and I think the answer is more nuanced I think that that very strong hypothesis is probably not correct. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, uh, we can talk about the the blind storyteller. Uh, so how did you become interested in this question of what lay people think about human nature? Um, as a mechanism of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I became interested in that because... Um, you know, so most of my career, I was interested in uh, universal grammar and question of innateness, of innate knowledge. Um, it was my impression that when I say go to a cocktail party and tell people about what they do, they look at me funny. Um, I tried to figure out why they look at me funny. You know, why, to me, that looked completely natural. I mean, if you think about why you have two hands, you know, or why you have this position for brain cancer, innateness there seems like a, you know, completely plausible hypothesis. Why is it the case that when you think about syntax and innate knowledge, why that cannot be innate? Why it's only having two hands that, that can be innate? Um, so to me, that, that seemed obvious, but it, turns out that people don't think that this is obvious at all. And they thought that, in fact, raising, even posing the question of innate knowledge is kind of absurd. Um, it took me a while to, to kind of figure that that's really what's going on. 
And once I did, I figured, okay, let's find out, right? I, I'm a cognitive scientist. I have the tools to examine that. So let's see if people are, in fact, biased in this way, right? So the first thing is to test my intuitions. I think that they're looking at me funny. Is it really the case, right? Is it really the case that people think that knowledge cannot be innate? Um, and if so, why that's the case? Um, so I started running a few experiments. It turns out that that was the case. And I decided, okay, I need to write a book. Great. Okay. So what are the findings? How, how are people systematically misled about human nature? Right. So um, again, I, I think that um, this is a huge accusation, right? That this is a huge uh, bill to, 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 um, to uh, pause here. Um, and this is particularly difficult to demonstrate precisely because scientists also debate on this question, right? So if you ask scientists, they, some of them will say there is no such thing as innate knowledge. Um, so how do you go about that? Um, so it, two ways. One way we went about that is simply focus on the facts. So present people with experiments, say, with newborns. What newborns can and cannot be cannot do, these are facts. And then you can ask um, uh, lay people to predict what would happen in these experiments and see what they would tell you and see whether people are uh, systematically biased about what they think can and cannot be innate in newborn infants. And there you just have large body of evidence that you can contrast their intuitions with, you know, what actually happens. So when you do so, people will tell you that, Yes, um, newborn infants can, uh, say, differentiate happy from uh, sad faces, that facial emotions are innate. Um, they have no problem with that. They think that, uh, say, the capacity to sit and walk, even though the infant is not doing it right now, that that is also innate. But when you ask them, will the infant understand that objects cannot move spontaneously or that would they have a notion of numbers? So would they know that three lights and three sounds have a property, numeric property in common? And you tell them exactly how it was done. So you actually repeat the experiment as it was done and ask them to predict what do you think infants would do? And then they tell you no way. So when you ask people about sensory capacities about, and about emotions, they volunteer that emotions, facial emotions are innate. In fact, that's not the case. I'm, I should clarify. It's not the, what's not the case is it's not the case that newborn infants can recognize facial emotions. At least so far, we have no evidence for that. Maybe facial emotions are innate. I think there is good reason to think that's the case, but recognition of facial emotions, that's not a scientific fact. But people are convinced that that is a fact. But when you ask them about innate knowledge, uh, or at least the ability to recognize abstract number at birth, we know that infants can do that. People say that's not the case. So this is your first red light. Now, there might be other reasons about why people don't think that knowledge is innate. Maybe it's because they learned math at school and they think that you know everything that has to do with knowledge has to be learned. That might contribute, but it might not, it does not explain what's going on. And it doesn't explain what's going on because when you look at why people are doing what they're doing, how they arrive at this decision, you see that the principles that drive their conclusions are completely messed up. And it's this faulty logic that makes you think that they are actually biased. So even if we don't ultimately know the answer about innateness, we still can show that the way people approach this problem is biased and is uh, faulty. Right. Right. Just anecdotally, I completely find that to be the case. People people always think emotions are innate. Yeah. They have a really tough time accepting that emotions can be learned. Whereas on the other hand on on the other hand, they have a really, really tough time thinking knowledge can be innate. Like yeah. to convince someone that you have numerosity as a capacity is really, really hard. People just don't don't accept it. Yeah. 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 So yeah. That, that that's exactly um what the experiments show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then we can, uh, so you talk about intuitive dualism and intuitive essentialism. 
so those are two kinds of camps that we can organize uh, those findings under. Yeah, so my claim is that our faulty conclusion arises from, it's kind of a perfect storm. So when we think about when people reason, reasoning is guided by various set of principles that have very good reasons to exist. They have core knowledge of objects. They have core knowledge about the mind of other, and the two are distinct. So that gives rise to this notion of uh, minds and bodies are separate. That gives uh, rise to intuitive dualism, and there is a large evidence that people, in fact, are intuitive dualists. So that's one thing. People are also essentialist in the sense that they think that living things are what they are because there is some essence that they are born with. A dog is what is a dog because it's born with some doggy essence that, that it possesses. And there is further evidence that when people think about this essence, they believe it resides in the body of that creature. Right. Okay? So the literature about dualism and essentialism there are two very large literatures that show that people are intuitive dualists and they are intuitive essentialists. What has not been previously recognized is that these two principles actually stand in conflict to each other. And they stand in conflict because when you come to reason about innateness, essentialism is talking and it's telling you, in order to figure out what's innate, you need to look at the body because the essence is in the body. But dualism tells you that knowledge isn't in the body. Knowledge is in the mind. That's what dualism is all about. So it follows from the conclusion, con collision between these two principles that knowledge cannot be innate. Um, that, that's kind of the insight uh, of the blind storyteller. And when we went to the lab and tested this uh, model, it turns out that actually it is borne out by the results that, um, that people are, in fact, uh, when they reason about knowledge, they view it as ethereal, distinct from the body, more so than, say, emotions, um, that when people think about innateness, they think that what's innate must be in the body. And there was also evidence that those two uh, principles interact. So I think there is um, good reason to think that the reason for our conclusions about what can and cannot be innate, they arise from these two principles of intuitive psychology. And that really is the problem, right? Because um, this notion that knowledge ethereal is obviously not in line with science. Essentialism also has some difficulties as a scientific doctrine, at least when it comes to explaining evolution. So um, it's the, coll the collision between these two principles um, or is uh, representing faulty ways of inference, and uh, that's really what um, leads us astray when we think about innateness. Uh, evolution specifically, this might kind of just be a, a dumb question, but uh, evolution specifically, do you think that sort of the the people knowing the conventions of evolution might contribute to them thinking of the body differently from the mind? Because I mean, to me, it's just, it's equally scientifically amazing that genes lead to bodily, to bodily development as it is how, how language works in the mind, right? But the the public education isn't there where people know a little bit about how evolution works but not a whole lot about how the brain works do you think that's kind of contributing at all let me see if i understand so you're saying that maybe the reason uh the reason why people don't get innateness is because they understand evolution but they don't understand the brain no no just uh, i'm talking about the just the specific idea of how people reason differently about the body and the mind or how that idea arises, whether it has evolutionary origins. Exactly, where people might use their sort of baseline understandings of evolution to reason one way about the body, and then the lack of baseline understandings about the mind to reason differently about the mind. Well, you would only do so if you're a dualist, right? So it's because you're a dualist that you think about that the mind must obey different principles from the body. So indeed, you can understand evolution, but in, on top of that, you're a dualist, you would exactly arrive at that conclusion. That so it, 
uh, I think it implements this distinction rather than provides an alternative to it. Right, right. People started dualism. Okay. Yeah. But I, I just want to clarify, I don't think that dualism per se is an evolutionary product, right? So there's no, I don't see any good reason for evolution to distinguish between bodies and mind. Rather, it's kind of, a, 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 as I call it, a series of unfortunate events in the sense that, yes, evolution has interest in uh, giving organisms the capacity to recognize objects, say the body of their mothers. Evolution might also have interest in um, uh, uh, giving humans the capacity to reason about the minds of others that might be adaptive. Each of those capacities are ad adaptive. Together, they give us to, to dualism, but uh, dualism itself has absolutely no... Um, I see, I see. So those are both adaptive in their own right. It's just the unfortunate accident of having them both. Yeah, exactly. That leads to people thinking this way. That, that's really smart. Okay. The, the impact of this is, as you talk about how people uh, incorrectly reason about mental disorders. Yeah, among other things, right. Um, so the whole notion of mental disorders, you know, I, I was always wondering what are people talking about when they talk about mental disorder and is it physical or is it mental? I mean, what could, what could it possibly mean? What am I not understanding here? Um, it turns out that, uh, this actually, uh, this dualism, uh, actually, uh, also kind of is the heart of how people reason about mental disorders, unfortunately. So, um, you know, uh, at the beginning of this century, or actually the end of the 20th century, there was this attempt to, okay, let's educate the public. Let's try to fight stigma. Of, uh, there's a lot of stigma, obviously, of, uh, concerning mental disorders. Let's try to fight the stigma by uh, telling people, listen, this is a physical problem like all other problems. And in fact, it did not fight the stigma and it did not uh, abolish the stigma in, in some ways. So there are really mixed results. There are some results that suggest that, um, you know, if you believe that a person disease is caused by their body, they are not freely willing the, the symptoms, then perhaps they're not responsible for them. On the other hand, if their body is so different to yours that they include this innate um, uh, uh, disorder, then uh, you, maybe you don't want to marry them, and maybe right, so, so you distance from them. Um, so the question, the, the but we try to understand a little more uh, why that's the case. That invoking the brain. So the question was whether it's specifically this notion of invoking the brain that actually caused the the. Um, it's called the stigma. So we did experiments such as telling people that here is this person that has symptoms of depression and they come to uh, the clinic and they're getting a test for their uh, to diagnose them. And the test either looks at their behavior so through some behavioral um, procedure, uh, say how you respond to happy faces versus sad faces, or and look at how fast people respond pressing a button. Right. Or look at some, you know, brain wave that happens in response to the same procedure. So the information that you get in both cases is exactly the same. And people are told in both cases, if you respond safe, faster to happy faces, then, you know, we know you don't have depression. If you don't, you do. The results people are told are exactly the same. The information that's obtained by the same test is exactly the same. But then when you ask people... Why is the person like that? Was they, were they born this way? Would you like to have your sister marry them? And so forth. They tell you that when the result... Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. When the result is obtained by the brain test, then uh, people are more likely to think that the disorder is innate and they also are uh, more... Um, they have more stigma, they are less likely to accept this person um, as, say, a marriage partner and so forth. This is only explained by dualism, right? Because why would you ex interpret the brain results differently from uh, behavioral results when they're informatively exactly equivalent? It looks like people attribute to the brain uh, 
first, they consider the brain different to information that does not speak to the body directly. And furthermore, perhaps because they're essentialists, they think that if it's in the brain, it therefore going to speak to your essence. And therefore, you better, you know, not marry this person and, and right. kind of, yeah. So, and, and that's very unfortunate. I mean, that, that, that's extremely uh, a serious uh, and, and uh, concerning result. Yeah, I mean, mental disorders, it's such a broad term, we don't know what to include in the umbrella of it, but is there a sort of homogeneity there where people think the same way about, say, uh, dyslexia as they do about, about dementia? Or Yeah, no, they don't. They don't. So, okay. so, so, there, so there are several distinctions to draw there. First, among those, the ones that people usually consider the real mental disorders, say people don't think about dyslexia as a mental disorder, a psychiatric disorder, even, even though technically um, it is, but they think about, say, depression as a mental disorder, schizophrenia as a mental disorder, and people treat them uh, differently to dyslexia. Dyslexia, uh, we actually, you, you get the opposite results. So when you ask people about dyslexia, they typically think that, um, that you know, uh, you ask a person why Johnny has problems reading, you know, the six-year-old, they tell you, oh, it's all letter confusion, they, they skip letters. That's actually not factually correct. So letter confusions happen to young children across the board, regardless of whether or not they have the dyslexia, um, the characteristics of dyslexia, what defines dyslexia, well, I should step back and say dyslexia is very heterogeneous. There are many types of dyslexia with many origins, but in most cases, what you find most uh, frequently are problems with processing speech sounds. So it's not in vision. It's not in our intuition says that dyslexia is all a visual problem. Um, but in fact, the problems that you see in dyslexia, because remember the link to um, the language and how this is hijacking the, the brain pathways for speech and language, the problems actually are in speech processing. And in fact, you find them, if you look at infants who are at risk for dyslexia because their parents, dyslexia runs run in families. So if you look at very young infants whose families have dyslexia, their speech perception is already significantly different to controls. But lay people don't think that's the case. So either they think that... Um, if they think that dyslexia is really a serious disorder, then think it must be visual because only sensory capacities can be innate. Right. Whereas if you tell them what dyslexia really is, which is really a problem in decoding sound letters, they think, oh, this might be this ethereal thing that is, is um, you know, that, that cannot be really innate because it's not in the body and therefore it's not as serious. So um, the misconceptions about dyslexia and say depression are opposite. In depression, people run to the conclusion that because you can kind of, you think it shows up in the face and because it's emotional, it must be innate and in the body. Whereas in dyslexia, as soon as you think about what it really is, which has to do with mapping letters to sound and knowledge, then you think, oh, that must be something that's completely, you know, um, uh, learned and, and not something that's innate. I see. What about something like schizophrenia? So schizophrenia, we found the same results, although because the disease is so severe there, you know, it, it, uh, it, it people tend to think about it regardless of, of how you present them as innate. but when you look at them, uh, manipulate this with a more sensitive procedure as we did, you do find the same findings. So then if telling the public that it's all physical didn't, didn't really work out, what, what is the kind of right way to, to be communicating this? So maybe, I, we don't know. Yeah. I think it's an empirical question, what works? But if I had to guess, I would say, Perhaps making people aware of their biases, know thyself, right? Maybe that would bring some insight, hopefully, but it remains to be seen. Okay. Okay. Shifting gears a little bit. Um, just want to talk about, talk, ask you about this idea. Uh, so the idea in psychology that, that different languages uh, lead people to think differently. Uh, yeah. So what, 
I've kind of been confused about that. So what is the sort of linguistics perspective on it? Because from a linguistics, linguistics perspective, it seems that there's generative language and it's largely the same across the species. So how could it express so differently? So it's an empirical question, right? Uh, there are people who worked in different, there are scholars who worked in different areas of language who came with different claims about that. Um, so rather than, so the, I, I don't think what matters is not what is the official position, but rather how does the literature look like when you look at that? One thing that I think is really important to kind of get completely to a red herring that we need to clear up ahead is this notion of what thinking is, right? So I think that part of the problem arises because people think that thinking is in language. And therefore, if you think, if you have different languages, it follows that you must think differently. But that's actually not the case. So there is, we already talked about a lot of evidence that suggests that newborns, in fact, can think. Um, they have a notion of number, they never have a notion of object, they have rudimentary understanding of language. So thinking is not does not require language. And in fact, most of thinking happens completely under the hood. So our intuitive understanding of thinking is it's the kind of the dialogue that you uh, hold with yourself, which is linguistic and in fact involves probably phonology as uh, the uh, linguist Ray Jackendorf suggested. So it stands to reason that if you have no language, you can't hold this dialogue. But cognition, the science of cognition tells us that most thinking happens completely, the most interesting things happen under the hood completely, and they're not accessible to language and they're not accessible to this internal dialogue. So therefore, um, to hold those computations, you don't need language. And indeed, there is a large literature that suggests that there are many aspects of cognition that can happen very well without recourse to language. This being established, we can now turn to the question of, okay, so what happens when you do have language and when your language differs from mine? There are tons of experiments that suggest that there are all kinds of subtle differences that happen. But so, for example, if you have different color words uh, than my color words, then your performance on certain color tasks is going to be different to mine. How important is it? Or to give another example, if uh, you speak Japanese, where uh, in Japanese I'm told that when there is an accident uh, incident that happens, and you do, you know, if I drop a cup didn't mean to do that, then you won't mention who did it. Well, there's evidence that when you look at present um, videos of uh, incidents like that to Japanese speakers, they have slightly worse difficulty recognizing who did it compared to English speakers who would uh, speak about it in these terms. So the evidence is there, but what it really means I'll leave it up to you. I think it would be preposterous to claim that if you're a Japanese speaker, you don't have a sense of morality or of free will or responsibility just because you speak this way and there is a difference of, say, 3 or 4% in, in, in your ability to recognize. So, yes, there is a measurable uh, 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 difference in performance, but I, I don't think these are profound differences in cognition. Right. There are other cases, however... So this being said, there are other cases where not having certain linguistic categories can make profound difference. Number cognition is one of those cases. So we talked about how the capacity to have recursive number is something that you build upon core knowledge that you're born with. What allows you to build this uh, inventive uh, mechanism of recursive number? Well, there is evidence that Having number words in your language, having a language that talks about number or have mechanisms such as plurals is important for this capacity to emerge. And there is beautiful work that suggests that if you have languages, if you have speakers of languages without those devices, then they don't develop recursive number. Um, 
even if, so there was the initial uh, demonstration by Peter Gordon that looked at members of the Piraha, which are hunter-gatherers in the Amazon that showed that they don't have recursive number. You can say, well, maybe they're not interested in in number. Maybe it's their culture that causes them to do so. But subsequent work looked at um, home signers, speakers who who are deaf and communicate using signs, but not a sign language. So they don't have linguistic formal mechanisms to express number. They have all the... uh, you know, societal initiative to understand number because they engage in commerce and so forth, and still they don't acquire um, recursive number. So I think there is pretty strong evidence that if you don't have uh, numeric language, then number cognition, recursive number cognition doesn't arise. And I think this is a huge deal. So there are few cases where number really has this profound effect on thinking. The hypothesis is not false, but uh, this needs to be really looked at in in a very nuanced way. Uh, Final question. Uh, Do you have any advice for young people? Uh, Follow your dream. Uh, Think really hard. Um, So first, I'd say... um, Academia is difficult, right? If you're going to go into that, it's because you really want to do that and you really care about it. Um, otherwise, don't bother because it's way too hard and 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 um, difficult. And but if you like those things, then um, think on your own. Um, read a lot. Balance practicality with reaching to the you know to the stars so you want to make your mark and reach to the star and go to those big questions you also want to have something cooking that would allow you to you know uh, fall back to Um, so it's like everything else in life Uh, have good friends that you can talk to and 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 balance the difficulties of academia um, but go for it. Yeah, there are so many questions that, that need people, smart young people that, that, that need to go there.